This, this is the second, second Story Podcast. The word family has a strict dictionary definition. Quote, a basic social unit consisting of parents and their children. The emotion of family, however, is much looser. The large clan of relatives, neighbors, and friends that make up each of our families is individual, amorphous, and impossible to define. Today, on the Second Story Podcast, Paula Carter explores what it means to be a family and how a family can grow and contract in beautiful and heartbreaking ways. Paula Carter is a Chicago-based writer and marketing professional. This story, titled Lessons in Almost Motherhood, marks her second story debut. From Webster's Wine Bar in March of 2014, Second Story is proud to present Paula Carter. The first time I met Caleb and Alex, they hid under their beds. I'm not sure what happened to the boys, their father said, winking at me as I entered the small house. Each room was painted a bright color, yellow, terracotta red, mint green. After his divorce from the boy's mother, James had needed some cheer. He looked at me expectantly. Where could they be, I said. I knew nothing about kids. I don't know, James said, pointing at their shared bedroom. I knew it was my cue to go in and discover them, but I hesitated. I was nervous about the meeting and wished they had just been standing by the door with their little hands outstretched to shake mine. But here we were, playing hide-and-seek right off the bat. I inched towards the door, and once I stepped inside, that was all it took. They burst forth, giggling. Two small boys with sandy brown hair. They jumped up and down, not getting close enough to touch me, but hovering in my radius. What's your favorite color? Caleb asked. Green. That was his, too. What's your favorite food? Quiche. The bounding stopped for a moment. (laughs) Caleb looked at me skeptically, then said, uh, mine's pizza. Alex, more reluctant, hadn't said a word, but he began bringing me toys. He carried over a transformer and set it in my hand. Cool, I said, but he had already turned to find some other offering. This was going well. James and I had been dating for a little over two months, and this was the first time I had met his two sons. With James, it had been something akin to love at first sight. He was a young photography professor at the university where I was working on my Master's of Fine Arts in writing, and he had come into the rare books library where I worked. And in a moment that lovers will recognize, we shared a smile that we would talk about for years to come. He had long hair and boyish looks, and I asked him what he was studying before finding out he was a professor. It was weeks before I found out he had children. The night I met the boys was the 4th of July. Muggy and hot in southern Indiana, we all piled into James's station wagon and headed to the park for the fireworks. But we had miscalculated the evening's events, arriving a half an hour after the boys' bedtime and an hour before the fireworks began. We had not brought water or snacks, and soon the boys appeared to be dying of thirst. If you have kids or know anything about kids, things can get dramatic really fast. By the time we left, without having seen a single firework, Alex had dumped my purse out onto the grass and had begun to call me Poopy Paula. 
In a way, I grew up right alongside Caleb and Alex. The boys were six and four, and I was 26 when we met. Right from the start, I told James I was not signing up to be a mom. I wasn't ready to be a mom. I was young, James nearly a decade older. He told me that was fine. After all, the boys already had one. But, of course, it wasn't that simple. If I wanted to see James more, it meant seeing the boys more. Soon, I was coming over for dinner and going to their baseball games. Eventually, James needed to go out of town to attend a conference, and his ex-wife couldn't watch them. James asked sheepishly if I would do it, and I agreed just this once. And so like that, there we were, the three of us watching Goonies together on a Saturday night. I was terrified something would happen that I couldn't handle. And then the Goonies headed down into the caverns, and Alex turned to me. Paula, I'm scared, he said. And it, and it is scary, right? I'm sure most of you have seen it. They're like, the Fatellis are coming in right behind them. There's like Chester Carperpot. It was my idea to bring the movie. It probably was not such a good idea. <laughs> Caleb, who was a little older, was loving this. It's okay, Alex, he said, shoving a fistful of popcorn in his mouth. I don't like it, Alex said. He looked at me with wide eyes and then buried his head into my chest, hiding his face. I was overcome by the sudden weight and warmth. He had never done such a thing before. I carefully put my hand on his back. What are they doing, Cal? He asked, eyes closed. He lifted his head for a moment to see them, buried it right back down into me. I could smell him, a strange smell that mixed dirty and sweet and grass. His skin so hot, his hair a little sweaty. And me, his protector. The first year we were all together, they threw me a birthday party. Just the three boys and me with streamers and balloons and cake. Alex was too excited about my gift to keep quiet, but he had been instructed by his brother not to ruin the surprise. So he said, we're not going to tell you what it is, but it does glow in the dark. I cherished that sentence more than the gift, which turned out to be a 25-piece puzzle of a sorcerer whose hat and wand did indeed glow in the dark. Blowing out my candles, Caleb dipping his fingers into the icing, James videotaping the whole thing, was probably the first moment that I loved them. All three of them, together. Two years later, I graduated with my MFA, and James was offered a tenure-track job at a small college in Ohio. He was farther along in his career than I was, and I was happy to move with him, putting my own teaching plans on hold while I worked on my writing. Eventually, he asked me to marry him, and I said yes. Although there were struggles, we were building a life together. So we moved. But the boys stayed behind with their mother, and everything became focused on the two weekends a month when the boys visited. I spent hours in the grocery store trying to find food they would enjoy. I wanted so badly to delight them, to see Caleb open up the cupboard and call out, Alex, we got fruit roll-ups! I definitely let them eat more junk food than their mother did. And I was working hard to help James accept the new situation, to appease his worry and guilt over the distance. He could spend hours in the evening silent on the, cou silent on the couch, second-guessing his decisions. I didn't know what to do with that. So I worked to create a fun home that the boys would look forward to coming to, even if it meant driving three hours one way every other Friday. 
It was fascinating to watch the boys adjust to our strange extended family. When James's ex-wife remarried, Caleb announced that he thought I should marry his new stepdad and James should remarry his mom and then all six of us should live together in one house. <laughs> I could see how this made sense to him. In his mind, his stepdad and I were similar and it was hard for him to have the two families separated. And honestly, I was flattered. Caleb hadn't eliminated his stepdad or me from his ideal family life. Even if his parents got back together, he imagined that we were there to stay. In the end, that was not the case. James and I found it harder and harder to make our relationship a priority until it became almost non-existent. By the time we decided things were not going to work out between us, I had spent almost five years watching the boys grow, picking them up from their mother's house, reading them The Secret Garden, playing Sorry on Friday nights. We had favorite movies and nicknames and stories they liked to hear retold. I was not their mother, but by the end, I was a kind of mother, an almost mother. And then I wasn't. The day that I left, the boys bought me cupcakes and we all ate them together. It was late fall, but unseasonably warm. Alex, who was almost nine years old then, said he wanted the chocolate one. And Caleb, nearly 11, told him to let me choose first. I chose the vanilla. It was too sweet in my mouth, but I ate it anyway. I hugged them in tears, and they looked at me solemnly, unsure how to react to the latest tragedy in their small lives. Then I got in my car and drove off to a new state, a new city, a new life. And when I did, I left my almost family behind. No ties to bind us, except the ones we had slowly fashioned in our time together, which unraveled so much faster than they had formed. Paula? Alex said. Hi, Alex. We were talking on the phone. It had been a couple months since I had left. I was sitting in my childhood bedroom, having moved back in with my parents. I'm thinking of an animal that starts with S, he said. Sasquatch, I said. Nope. Spider. Nope. Spider monkey, he laughed. Yep. Well, no, it was Sasquatch. <laughs> I asked how he was doing. He said he was thinking of an animal that started with A. Then he said Caleb wanted to talk. Caleb was playing on his PSP and narrated the game to me before saying he should probably go. He asked if I wanted to talk to his dad. I said no. I had called to talk to him. I hung up the phone and listened to the silence. A silence I had often craved when the boys were in the house. I found I missed the boys almost more than their father, which felt confusing. At many points while we were together, I had imagined that my relationship with James would have been perfect. Smooth sailing. If only he did not have kids. Now, here I was longing for them. Once I was gone, I didn't know how to handle my relationship with the boys. Should I call them? How often? Go visit them? Did they feel like I'd abandoned them, or did they care? I sent them cards and gifts on holidays, but they continued to grow, Caleb nearly a teenager, and James and I drifted farther apart. It started to feel strange, forced maybe. I haven't talked to you in forever, Caleb said the last time I spoke with him. He didn't have a lot else to say. 
Finally, one of my girlfriends asked if maybe it wouldn't be better for me and my heart if I just stopped. And so I did. There was no final phone call, no summing up of what they had meant to me, just a hollow drifting away. Now my label is even less defined. I'm not a stepmom. I'm not even someone's dad's girlfriend. I am an almost mother turned no mother. I know most of the WWE wrestling characters and can play Madden on Xbox. I'm cool like that. You definitely want me for your girlfriend. <laughs> but like some lost language, these pieces of information have no place in my life. When I bring up something to do with kids, my friends, even those who are parents, look at me with confusion. Shouldn't I be talking about things more suited to my new life as a single girl in a new city? When something reminds me of the boys, I've learned to keep it to myself. But my heart is not the same. I miss their smiles, their soft, squishy bodies in my arms. I even miss the hours in the grocery store spent meditating on someone else's needs. I think often of where they are now, the grade they are in, their friends, maybe even girlfriends. I realize they are growing, almost beyond recognition. I was recently playing with a friend's son. We were doing a puzzle of the United States of America, and we both cheered every time we found where Colorado or Oregon went. My friend said to me, you're really good with kids. I didn't know that about you. I just smiled and said, yeah, I like kids. I've had some practice. into your life and expanded your definition of family? This question was posed by Paula Carter. This story was curated by Nick Ward with performance direction from Julian Stroop and a sound design from Nick Kawahara. You can always reach me for a comment on this or any other Second Story podcast at podcast at secondstory.com. Be sure to follow Second Story on Twitter at Second Story or on Instagram at Second Story Chicago to get behind the scenes of our curation process. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes so more listeners can find and hear this work. Second Story podcasts are brought to you in part by the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the City Arts Program, the Chicago Community Foundation, part of the Chicago Community Trust, and the Arts Works Fund. Second Story podcasts are produced by Eric Hazen, with special thanks to Sherry Pentamone, C.P. Chang, Danielle Ezel, and David Adams. We share our stories so you'll share yours. Now go out and knock them dead with story power. I'm Ozzie Totten, and this is Second Story.